couple weeks ago, we studied in our controversy series, we're in this series, Controversy, the Tough Passages of the Bible. We've been in it for a little while, and uh, a couple weeks ago, we studied Genesis 1-1. Uh, this is how it goes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's right there. It's the first one in your Bible. If you do not have a Bible, <clears throat> these ones in front of you, you can use those to read during the sermon. They'll also be on the screen. You can bring them up on your phone, however you want to do that. But if you don't have one, we want you to take one of these home with you. This is our gift to you. You don't have to pay us anything for it. They're nice Bibles. We want you to have the Word of God in your home. So if you guys see one of these in front of you and you need a Bible, take one, take it home with you. In any case, we work through the idea that there, it's a controversial statement to say that God is the creator of heaven and earth and all there is. And we also talked about how if you don't believe that, there's really no reason to believe anything because you could not possibly trust your mental faculties because you would be completely determined. Whatever you thought would have been determined by the random things that were going on with all the stuff in the universe. And so you couldn't trust your thoughts to be accurate because they're just whatever you would have thought anyway by the stuff that's bouncing around in your brain. So further, we studied that the controversy itself over whether it's true, whether God exists, is sort of meaningless because we know that anything that begins to exist has a cause, and we know from reason and from science now that the universe most certainly had a beginning and therefore by logic, by necessity, must have a cause. The only thing that could be that cause is God, the creator of the universe. That's why he says it in the first verse, because it's true. God, who is omniscient, knows everything. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He's everywhere. He knows everything. That's the God that created the universe, the only kind of God that could have. And a loving and personal God also has to be true for a number of reasons. <clears throat> but the implications for the rest of your life, we didn't talk about. Because it's just one part of the controversy, whether God exists. The next part is, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? What does that mean for the rest of your life, for the rest of the things that you do, that God exists. There have almost certainly always been atheists, I'm guessing since close to the beginning. There were people who decided they were gonna be atheists. Not many of them, there still aren't that many of them, but there almost certainly have been who reject God's existence. But there is a different kind of atheism that I wanna talk about this morning. It's a much more popular form of atheism See, while some people may deny God with their words, even more people deny him in their heart, in their heart. Denying God with your words is certainly a serious sin, but denying God in your heart leads to every other sin. Psalm 14, one, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now, we're going to try this. Don't put it up there yet. We're going to do something, and then it's going to happen, and we're all going to be happy, and we're going to cheer. It's going to be a whole thing. Click to begin. Start. Go back here. Put that up. Go like that. Okay, try. Yeah. <laughs> This has been like a whole thing for me. Technology, I'm too old for all this. Anyway, here's the verse. And I want you to notice some things about this verse, okay? What I want you to notice is that the fool, let me make sure I've got some, yep, I got a color here. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the thing that's happened. 
Then it says what happens, right? This is what happens. If you say in your heart there is no God, the next thing is they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. In case you're wondering, abominable is an adjective. I looked this up on Microsoft Word. Causing moral revulsion. You're doing things that cause moral revulsion. Those who say there is no God are corrupt. They're not just fools because they've said this in their heart. When they say it in their heart, it leads to corrupt actions. We have said many times this statement, believe, do. It is coming up, good. Believe, do, right? We say, if you believe in God, you should do the things he's called you to do. Jesus says this to us, believe, do. What you believe is what you will do. When you deny God in your heart, you also believe, do. And what you do is corrupt and abominable. This is so important that you understand. That if you deny God in your heart, you will do corrupt and abominable things. That's how it works. Okay, you can take this thing off now. We did it. I think we should all congratulate ourselves. <clears throat> we are so good at this. All right, I'm going to turn that thing off. All right, here we go. So, that's the only thing I'm going to do with the iPad today. I just wanted to see if we could make it happen. If our heart denies God, we do corrupt and abominable works, and all of us are saying, oh, well, good. We're in church, so obviously we don't deny God. That's not a thing that we do. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. One of our departed preachers of the past is a fellow named Stephen Charnock who lived, according to the internet, because I wasn't there, I could have asked my dad, but uh, from 1628 to 1680. <laughs> Stephen Charnock called this state of denying God in our heart, he called it practical atheism. Practical atheism, okay? Not so much actual atheism, where people are going around saying there is no God, but practical atheism. You can claim to believe God in your head, and deny him in your heart. You can talk about God as though you believe in him and actually still be denying him in your heart because you deny him when you deny anything about him, when you deny who he is. Here's some things he is. He's the creator of heaven and earth and everything. He's the creator of everyone you have ever met or will ever know. And he's the creator of me and he's the creator of you. Now that has implications. That has implications. He's holy, he's perfect, he's loving, he's patient, kind, and gentle, and awesome. Awesome in the sense of awe, okay? And all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present, and he sees you now, right now, and he has seen you in every moment you have ever lived. Let that sink in for a second. Every moment that you have ever lived, everything that you have ever done, God has seen. You cannot run from him. You cannot hide from him. And because of who he is, you owe him honor and respect and glory and love and affection and your life. Because in Jesus Christ, he has died for you and paid for your sins. If you live like any of these things are not true, if you ever live like any of these things are not true, you are living in that moment like a practical atheist. Someone who denies God in their heart. Because you're denying God or refusing to admit in your, in your heart, to admit in your heart one or more of these things that I just said. When you do that, you practically deny God's existence because you deny who he is. There is more than one way to do this, to deny God's existence in your heart. And so I want to I talk about a few different groups of people. <clears throat> First one I want to address is the unbeliever. 
The unbeliever. What I mean by an unbeliever is a person who has not done the following, has not done what the scriptures say in Romans uh, 10, 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you have not done that, then you are in a category of folks I'm calling unbelievers. Okay, it doesn't mean you don't believe anything. It means that you have not put yourself with Jesus as your Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. You're not a saved Christian. If you have followed Jesus Christ as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you've been born again of the Spirit. You're a believer in this context. You can do that today, by the way. You can do it right now. You can talk to me or anyone else as part of this church, Pastor Dave back there, one of our elders, one of our deacons, almost anybody around you can help you or at least get you to somebody who can help you if you want to be born again of the Spirit. They will help you, and Jesus will give you life. You'll be forgiven of all your sins, and you'll be free. But this first practical atheist that I want to talk about is for the unbeliever, the person who has not done this, but maybe still believes in God. So not necessarily an unbeliever in God, but they are an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, the biblical Jesus, okay? Some cases, they may not claim to believe in God, but they show that they believe in God, which we'll get to those people in a second. But let me walk you through this, okay? These, these are people who claim God, they believe in God, but they're unbelievers, they're not faithful to him. There are lots of people, lots and lots of people who claim to believe in God, or at least in some version of God, or I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, or, 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 right? People have all kinds of, of ideas of who God is. They have a God, a version of God in their mind that they've created, but they reject basically all of God's commands, except maybe the ones that they like. They reject any part of God's love that is anything other than being nice and affirming their ideas. That's what love is. God is love. And what they mean when they say God is love in that context is God is really nice. And whatever I believe, he affirms. He thinks I'm great. He thinks all the things I do are great. That's the God of our generation. Okay. That's the God that people have in their minds. Now, for these people, when they say God is for us or God being for us means God wants us to live however we want to live. I call these people God's trust fund babies. That's, that's what I call them. We know about classic trust fund babies, right? Stories of very wealthy people who always got whatever they want and they were never told no about anything, right? And they end up being wonderful people, right? They end up being completely broken, selfish people who think the world and everyone in it, including God, if they believe in God, exists for their sake. That's what they believe. They know their own wants, but they know nothing of what their true needs are. And so they pursue their wants and pursue their wants until they can no longer find pleasure in any of them. And then generally they become bitter and angry people. You may have run into people like this. There are people like this. They're not just rich people. They're people who have been believing that the world was all about them. It's the person who makes God into a kindly grandfather who gives lots of treats, but no discipline, okay? So when my daughter, Corey, was born, <clears throat> cutest baby probably that's ever been. I have to be honest. I'm just being honest. I'm not biased. In any case, so she was the first grandchild for my parents. And my dad, I'm talking like this girl is six months old. And he's got her eating pizza and Pepsi and like candy. And like, she's just, you can't, you, whatever she wants, she's getting. And he would never say a harsh word to her. Look, praise God for parents because grandparents are not doing that. 
not doing that job very well. My grandparents were a little better at it. Uh, that, well, <laughs> it depends on how you want to look at that. I got a few swats from grandpa, and I'll tell you what, that was, that was rough. His hands were about the size of this thing, and they were strong. And I'm not just saying that because I was little. They really were that big. Um, maybe not quite. But the idea of this kindly grandpa, God is a kindly grandfather. He just wants to give us treats, and he doesn't have any discipline. C.S. Lewis said this about it in The Problem of Pain. <clears throat> what would really satisfy us would be a God who said, if anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. That's the God of this generation that they create for themselves. That's, that's an unbeliever's God. That is, of course, thank the real God, the holy God, the consuming fire, that that is not at all who God really is. God is, in fact, much more like an enamored lover or a good father who pours himself into teaching and loving his children, wanting them to be better, wanting to mold them and transform them and grow them. Not at all careless. Not at all careless. He's not anything like a senile grandfather. He is the consuming fire. He doesn't just see you and know what you do. He cares what you do. He cares what the people who think that he just wants them to do whatever they want. He cares what they do too. Because the things that you do in this life either honor him and bring him glory and grow you and mature you and bring you peace and joy and faith and grace or or those things bring God pain and conform you to the world, bringing you spiritual and physical death. Those are the two options with the things that you do. This is a form of practical atheism, people who believe this way, because its adherents, people who follow this, profess to believe in God in some general way, but show that their hearts do not honor him as God. I'm going to show you two sides of this. First, Isaiah 29, 13 says this, Therefore the Lord said, this is a prophecy that Isaiah makes, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths, oh, I believe in God, and honor me with their lips, oh, God is good, he's love, right? This kind of thing. But have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. I think these people have always existed. Right now, I'm talking to the people who are on what we would call the progressive Christian side, the side where God lets us do whatever we want. But there's another side, the people that Isaiah was prophesying. Jesus actually quotes this prophecy to the scribes and Pharisees who are a whole different kind of practical atheists. This is what he, Jesus says, hypocrites, this is Matthew 15, seven through nine. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, it's true about people who think God doesn't tell them to do anything. It's also true for people who get super religious and legalistic and say, God is telling you to do everything. He's got all of these rules for you. They're the opposite. You got the spiritual trust fund babies, and you got the Pharisees. They're on opposite sides where they're actually denying who God is. In one sense, they deny that he has any claim for their behavior and their morality 
and wants their true heart and their true love at all. And the other side, they say, no, God wants you to literally follow 18,000 rules every day because you need to do enough to please him, which denies the cross and denies the resurrection, denies the gospel. So you can go either way with this. You can fall on either side into a ditch. The Pharisees created new rules. In doing so, they lost the entire point of the commandments to show honor to God and to thrive as people who God loves. Do you know that's what it's about? These commandments, the scripture, this is for you and for your relationship with him. He wants, it is good that you should honor God. If you take your kids to see a, Multnomah Falls, I assume everybody here has been to Multnomah Falls. If you haven't, it's like 40 minutes away. Come on. Beautiful. Glorious. An amazing creation that God has made. If your kid goes and sees that and goes, that's dumb. You're probably going to think, I should inculcate or instill in my kid a little better appreciation for the things of God because his, the, the, the way that he is seeing this isn't good. I assume it's a he. Girls would be smart enough to see that it was good. <clears throat> way that he's seeing this isn't good. He's not recognizing the well-made works of God. Even Aristotle knew that the good man, the good woman, was able to see the good things and give to do to the good things that God and man had made, right? And so the idea is that if you're a good person, you actually give honor. It's good for you to do that. And following God's commands helps you to live a life that helps you to thrive. That does not mean, like some people might tell you, money, you know, wealth, health, and, you know, Ferraris. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about truly inside you the things that matter, those things thrive when you follow what God has actually told you to do. Not less than and not more than, just what God has called you to do. So this type of practical atheism can apply to the uber-religious or to the uber-spiritually progressive. In both cases, the God of Scripture, the only true God, is actually denied. And in his place, there is a God who either approves of more rules or just the rules that a particular person likes, depending on which side of that thing you're on. And by that, God's name is blasphemed. Because they say, this is what God is like, and it's a lie. It's practical atheism. But there are others. There are those who claim there is no God with their mouths. But then they talk and act as if objective morality exists. This is very important because you may have some of these people in your life. They talk like, oh, there's no God. There couldn't be a God. That's not a thing. But then they live in such a way that they are always constantly implying the existence of God. And they imply the existence of God because they think that there is a, an objective morality. An objective morality. Now, when I use the word objective morality, I'm doing that to separate it from subjective morality. Subjective morality uh, basically involves believing that your moral choices are sort of up to you. They're internal. They happen inside your own head, right? They come from inside the person. There's no moral authority outside the person. A great example of this is the phrase, my truth. My truth, right? Which suggests that something could be true in general, even though it is stated to be a subjective belief of my own. This is my truth and therefore you should believe it. 
For example, if I say, I believe it's a good thing to steal from my boss because it makes me feel good, and that is my truth. That would be subjective morality and stupid, right? But it depends on the psychological state of the person saying it. That's subjective morality. Objective morality is different. We're going to read out of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy because we're smart, okay? So listen, this is how it defines it. An objective standard of right holds that the person must actually meet the standard. That there's a standard that must be met, and the meeting of the standard is something objective, not dependent on the person's psychological states. So let me, let me explain that better. What they're saying is, is that objective morality means that you believe that there's a standard that has to be met, and that standard is not something internal that you think you ought to meet, but something you know comes from outside that you're supposed to meet. It doesn't depend on whether you like it, whether you believe it, whether you feel it. It applies to all people at all times and all places. That's objective morality. It's the idea that it's out there, not in here or in here, that you get to decide what's right and wrong. It's the kind of morality that everybody believes in, even those who say they don't. And how do you know that? Because that's how people talk, right? Through the first uh, chapter of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, you can see a whole thing on this. But when I say that people say that God doesn't exist with their mouth, but talk and act as if objective morality exists, what I mean is this. There are people who deny the existence of God and yet protest what they see as injustice. They argue for what they believe to be right, and they believe it is right for everyone, not just for them. They'll say that people should treat others well. They say that violence is bad generally, kindness is good generally. They say lots of things, and I agree with them about many of the things they say. I think we ought to treat people well. I also believe that generally violence is bad and kindness is good. Those are, those are true things. They're not wrong about that. The problem is that they cannot consistently believe that these things are true and deny God. They can't have it both ways. They can't have it both ways because any objective standard needs an objective standard maker. You can't have a standard that applies to everybody. You are just blasting nonsense when you tell people to whatever the thing is. Save the earth, be kind to people. You know, don't do this, don't do that, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. If you don't believe in God, those words are meaningless. All you could possibly be expressing is your preference. I don't like when people steal. I don't care, right? There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing to actually bind anybody to anything because every objective standard requires a standard maker. Planets and stars and water and earth cannot tell us whether we ought to do unto others as we would have them do to us. Only God can do that. Stuff doesn't care what you do. Okay? If the universe is just stuff, stuff doesn't care what you do. If there is an ought you ought to, then there is a who, the one who says so. Because the great question to be asked of anyone who makes a moral pronouncement is, says who? Let's, let's play this out. You ought to love your neighbor. Says who? Well, Steve said so. Why should I care what Steve says? Right? Or the person can say, no, 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 it's just what's morally right, to which the skeptic can say, who says it's morally right? You? And it goes on and on and on. Because if there's no God to ground morality in, then there is no standard for you. You just do whatever you can get away with. I don't know if you've noticed, but that seems to be the general philosophy of an awful lot of people right now. 
do whatever you can get away with and then lie about it. And since we're all lying about it, whatever, we all just kind of go, hmm, whatever. I mean, think about the amount of lies. And I don't want to, let's not get political, okay? Because it's on both sides of every political aisle. And it's on every side of the news. It's on every side of everything, science, everywhere. People just lie. And then when they get caught, they go, oh, well. That says, I don't think there's a standard for me. I do whatever I think I can get away with. There is no law without a lawgiver. There is no objective morality that applies to all people, in all places, at all times, without God. There has to be God. He is the only possible one who could lay down such an objective morality. And he has. And everyone who is honest knows it. Which is why those who deny God with their mouths cannot then imply the existence of God when they make moral pronouncements. They can't do both. Here's the moral argument for the existence of God as framed by Dr. William Lane Craig. I'm just going to give it to you real quick. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. But objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. If God doesn't exist, you can't have objective moral values. Sounds kind of circular, but it's not. It's a, it's a, that premise is a fact. And many atheists actually will agree with this. They'll actually say that's true. We don't really have, there is no such thing as an objective moral standard. We, do, we hope that people will do what's right because we prefer people doing what's right, but there's no reason to believe that anybody's actually right or wrong. And this is the problem with the controversy over Genesis 1.1. If you deny the existence of God, you are left with a world without morality. In the 19th century, philosophers struggled with this. And you had all kinds of moral upheaval and existentialism and all this kind of stuff that came out of the idea that once we reject God, we have no basis for value, for purpose, for morality, for anything. They understood that, which is why they were quite upset until we realize, but there is a God, quite obviously. If there's not, then you have to live with the idea that evil people aren't evil and good people aren't good. That's, that would have to be the reality. It means you could only talk about behavior you approve of personally or prefer personally. You could never talk about what was actually right. You could never talk about what was actually wrong. But no sane person lives in that world. No sane person lives in that world. No sane person, therefore, should deny the truth of Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and all that that means, and all that flows from that. As surely as physics is a set of laws that govern the motion of the stuff in the universe, right? That's how the planets are moving. That's how you're still sitting in a chair instead of floating up in the air, right? Physics, as sure as that is true, Morality is a set of laws that govern the behavior of people made in the image and likeness of God. It is just like physics. It's the same idea. God has made these laws. If you deny that, if you deny that, you deny the fact that the Holocaust was evil and that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was good. You couldn't say those things. Words like good and evil would have no meaning. All they could mean is something I like or something I don't like which is not how we talk and not what we mean when we talk. 
Neither is it how atheists talk or what they mean when they talk. So the unbeliever is a practical atheist. The unbeliever who says God exists, right? The first person we talked about is a practical atheist. And the atheist is trying to be a practical Christian, right? They're saying there is no God, but then living with a subjective morality standard. So part of them is being a practical Christian. And then the Christian that's not, that's an unbeliever. The person who believes in God's an unbeliever is actually being a practical atheist because they're saying there aren't any rules. So everybody is confused and messed up. Okay. They're not consistent. They're not consistent. It's a mess. That's why the world is confused and broken right now. These kinds of thoughts, these kinds of worldviews, but that's all good except for this. What about you? The believer the Christ follower. Are you a practical atheist? Every time we willingly sin, we are being practical atheists. Every time we willingly sin, we are being practical atheists. Galatians 6, 7a, the first part of the verse, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. We cannot draw near with our mouths and honor God with our lips, but remove our hearts far from God. We cannot praise Jesus Christ on Sunday morning and live like he isn't real on Monday afternoon. Or we're practical atheists. We cannot say we're committed with our mouths and complain when we are called to be committed with our time or with our money. Or we're practical atheists. We cannot put a cross on our neck and at the same time act like God doesn't see us or care when we lie and cheat and have angry outbursts and are gluttons and on and on and on, gossips difficult people, unloving. Or we're practical atheists, right? We have to honor God for who he is. We have to act like we believe what we say we believe. God is with us all the time. God loves us all the time. God cares how we act all the time. God cares how we think all the time. God loves us with a jealous and passionate love. (coughs) we cannot spend half our lives acting like we believe that and half our lives living like it isn't true or we're practical atheists. See, Genesis 1-1 doesn't just apply when we're in church. It applies when you're at the party. It applies when you're at work. It applies when you're talking with your friend, your wife, your husband, your kids. It applies all the time. If you believe it, it has implications all the time. Whenever you act like it's not true in the way that you live, you're becoming a practical atheist because what you're saying is, I don't really believe that. Because if I really believed it, I could not treat this person this way. I could not treat this person this way if I really believe that God's right here watching me and cares about me and loves me and that if I do what's right, I will thrive in him. And so you cannot believe all of that and do the things that we all do. And so every time that we do those things, we're basically denying God in our hearts and being like practical atheists. The controversy is that if this verse, Genesis 1-1, is true, then so many other things are also true. If this verse is true, the entire scripture is true. Because the same God that created the heavens and the earth also inspired the scriptures. The Bible is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. This is Paul writing to Timothy by the 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Denying God in our hearts makes us fools, but the scriptures, as it says here, make us wise for salvation. Practical atheism forgets about God and who he is and leads to unrighteousness, as we saw from Psalm 14.1. But the scriptures are profitable for what? For correction and for instruction in righteousness. We got to get away from the practical atheism and get into the word of God. All of it. Not more than it says and not not a sentence less than it says. And this is the problem for those two sides that we talked about, right? The I believe in God, but I don't actually really believe in this. Sorry, doesn't work. The I believe in God, but I actually believe this plus a lot of other stuff that I've added to it. Sorry, doesn't work. Of course, atheists are broken and confused. And of course, unbelievers who believe in a senile grandpa of a God that they made up, of course, they're confused. But we as Christ followers, we should not be confused. We should say what we believe and live out what we say. We should hold one another accountable to live the truth. Not my truth, not your truth, but the truth. The truth, God's truth. We have to live like God knows and loves and cares and disciplines and corrects and gives grace and gives mercy. We gotta live like all of that is true in everything that we do. But we got to believe that he does that with the intention of using the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. When we live like there's no God, regardless of what we say we believe, we are being conformed to the world. That's what is happening, okay? Because the world lives like there's no God. So when we live like there's no God, and I mean, you get out of church, you go home, your husband's ticked you off, and instead of what is, God is here, God loves me, God cares, what would God want me to do in this situation? Nope, you go straight to yourself. That's denying the power of God. And when you do that, you're gonna act like the world. You can be conformed to the world. And by the way, the world is watching and your children are watching. And your family is watching. Your neighbors are watching. And your coworkers are watching. Because they want to know if it's real. When we live like there's no God, regardless of what we say we believe, we are being conformed to the world. And the ways of the world, they're lost and confused. When we submit ourselves fully to God, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? Romans 12, one through two. I beseech you, I urge you, therefore brethren, that's brothers and sisters, that's all of you who are saints, who love Jesus, who are in him, who are Christ's followers, born again, that's who he's talking about. By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, your rational service. And do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's going to happen if you live like a practical atheist? You're going to be confused and you're going to get conformed to the world. And your transformation is going to keep getting hiccups. You come in, you come into the church, and you're singing worship, and, the, and, and God's there, and he's in your heart, and you feel him, and, and, and you're going, and he's transforming you, he's changing you through the word of whatever, and then you forget it, and you go do whatever you're doing. You're conforming back. Now we've got to get you back in here on Sunday and get you up, and so you can go back out, and you're not back now, right? And what, that, what happens is we can't move forward. Because we're constantly going from Christ followers to practical atheists to Christ followers to practical atheists. We don't have time for that. There are people who are dying and going to hell. There are people who need to be discipled and grow. And so we can't live like that. The controversy of Genesis 1-1, it begins in the house of the Lord in the household of faith. We are to be living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God. That is our reasonable, rational service. That's the reasonable thing. Just like the reasonable thing to do when I see Multnomah Falls is to go, the glory of God is amazing. The reasonable thing for you to do when you have the glory of God and Jesus Christ has died for you and you know that and you believe that God raised him from the dead, the reasonable thing for you to do is to make your body a living sacrifice living like he is real and he is there and that he cares all the time and not living half your week or half your day or one second if you can help it like a practical atheist it's how we're transformed it's by living that way not by half service to the lord i come on sundays i type amen on like the biblical facebook posts or like, type amen if you're a Christian. Like, I don't have to do that. You don't get to tell me what to do, Facebook. Um, but you need more than that. Every second submitting to God, to Jesus as the Lord of our lives, anything else is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. It's acting in a way different than what we claim and what we say with our mouths. The unbeliever, the atheist... They're not going to be moved by evidence of a good and holy God if his people live like practical atheists. Pretty simple. We need to be on fire for the truth, on fire for the gospel. We need to think about God. We need to think about his word. We need to live his truth. He is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's the deal. If you have been living more like a practical atheist than a Christ follower, I have good, humbling, glorious news for you. God loves you and has grace for me and for you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let that sink in. Because each one of us knows that there's some aspect of our lives where we are denying the fullness of who God is. And we need his grace and forgiveness. God is so gracious. I thank him with all of my heart that he is because I need his grace time and time and time again. For all the times that I've lived like a practical atheist, I need his forgiveness. All the times I act like a hypocrite. 
I deny the truth in my heart by ignoring my God who is here and is always with me, even to the end of the age. Amen? Right? All right. I think God's saying it's time to be done. Listen, we're almost done. We're almost done. You don't have to live in shame and in guilt about your sin and your practical atheism. What you need to do is start fresh with new mercies every morning. Today, let's confess and repent to the Lord in our hearts and be forgiven. Before you take communion this morning, I want you to get this right in your heart. Ask God to make himself so real to you and so close to you that you never live like he does not see and does not care. Living in him and in his presence is awesome. Truly awesome. And when I say awesome, I mean in the real sense of that word, awe. Full of awe. All of the meaning of that word. We are his and he is ours. And we have everlasting life. Eternal life in him. But don't forget all of that when the days get hard and the times get tough. We trust in him. We do not forget about him when it's convenient to forget about him and remember him when it's convenient to remember him. And don't change the way you live by who you are around. That's practical atheism. Don't fear the men and women in your life and their opinions of you. God's opinion is the only one that's going to matter at the end when you're standing there with him and his eyes are fire. And you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't have a bunch of regrets about the fear of men and women that you worried about their opinions. The truth is, guys, girls, they're looking to you as a Christ follower. If they know that you're a Christ follower, they're looking to see if you're going to fold up. If you're going to fold up the truth and hide it away when things are tough and the pressure is on, but you've got to trust God in those times. It's getting harder. I get it. Stay strong. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. You got to trust him. If you're a kid, you go to public school, the Lord be with you. But he went to put you in this time, in this place, if he wasn't going to build into you the ability to stand strong. If you have a job and you go to a workplace, you're probably around a lot of people who are trying to push you into a lot of things that are unbiblical and ungodly. And I pray for you, Lord, give strength to this church because you have to stand strong and trust God for the outcome. Or else we're just practical atheists. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the fountain of life-giving water, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, the promised Messiah who saves, today is the day. You can find him and know him and have joined him and peace with your God. If you are a Christ follower, assess your life. Ask yourself whether you are living like God is God all the time. Either way, unbeliever, believer, whoever you are, he is a good God. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one true God, he will draw you to himself. And he will make you new. Philippians 1, 6, second part of the verse. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Your beliefs have consequences. 
They will determine how you live. You will believe, do. You will believe, do. So if you believe it will determine it, if you have a lack of belief, that also has consequences and will determine how you live and for whom you live, for God or for yourself. I love you. I pray that we will honor God for who he is all the time, in every part of our lives, in every way, every day. I want us to live never as practical atheists and always as Christ's followers. And I want us to show the world that because if you do that, you will change the world. That's how Christians have always changed the world. And we don't have to worry about the 8 billion people. We got to worry about the people who are right here in the context that we've been called. So let's live that way and honor God. 